It's just as easy to make big money as little money. In my profession, $100 is just chicken feed. We think in thousands, not tens. Experience has taught me that it's easy to separate a sucker, the right sucker, from $5,000 as from 50. We always offered our services to well-to-do men, holding out the promise that their investments were certain to net them profit in three to four figures at least. And that's the real bait for the sucker, particularly if he's the close-fisted kind that always wants something for nothing. Yeah, there always was a lot of satisfaction, as well as cash profit, and trimming some old skin flint who would rob his own grandmother if he had a chance. These are the words of Doc Bags, a legendary con artist and frontier gambler who plied his trade throughout the West. Although Doc is largely forgotten nowadays, his lasting legacy turned out to be his most notorious apprentice, a young man from Georgia who'd come to be known as Soapy Smith. You see, it's on the streets of Denver where Smith learned all Doc Bags had to teach. And when it came time for Doc to move on, young Soapy took his spot as the undisputed kingpin of the Mile High City. But he weren't no gunman, at least not really. Instead of Colt revolvers, Soapy's weapon of choice was a quick wit coupled with a silver tongue, a whole hell of a lot of charisma, and the magical ability to make people see and believe things that did not exist. All of which would earn him the title as the king of the frontier con men. That said, Soapy certainly wasn't afraid of resorting to violence if the situation called for it. With an army of thugs at his disposal, Smith would face down more than a few deadly killers. And like many other icons of the Old West, Soapy would ultimately go down in a blaze of gunfire. They say fortune favors the bold, and they don't get much bolder than Soapy Smith, a charming rogue who spent his life operating in the shadows, leaving behind a legend as complex as the frontier he called home. But who was the real Soapy Smith? What the hell kind of a name is Soapy anyway? And is it true that he once owned a petrified giant? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Jefferson Randolph Smith II. How's that for a name? was born in Georgia in November of 1860 to a somewhat well-to-do family. His father, Jefferson I, was an attorney in addition to owning quite a bit of land. As such, Smith and his siblings would grow up with a better-than-average education. That said, his early years were tumultuous at best. As was the case with many a southern dynasty, the Smith family wealth all but evaporated during the war between the states. A devastating loss that, according to legend, caused Jeff's daddy to climb into a bottle that he never found his way out of. Per the 1870 census, the family was still living in Georgia, but would soon pack up and head to Texas, settling down in Round Rock somewhere around the year 1876, where Jeff's mother operated a boarding house. It was there in Round Rock where young Smith first learned how to hustle, meeting newcomers at the train depot and steering them towards his mama's hotel. It's also where he witnessed the violent death of outlaw Sam Bass. Maybe. What do I always say? There are a ton of tall tales surrounding the people we cover here on the Wild West Extravaganza, and Soapy Smith is certainly no exception. As an adult, Soapy would move in the dark, so to speak, and one of his greatest talents was obfuscation, or as biographer Jane Haig puts it, creating confusion by purposely spreading false information. Needless to say, there yet remains certain gaps in Soapy's life. And at times, it's hard to tell what really occurred versus the stories that he and others shared. What we do know is that even at a very young age, Jeff seemed destined for the life of an entrepreneur, particularly one with a strong bent towards easy money. 
As a teenager, Smith was mesmerized by traveling peddlers there on the streets around Rock. And rumor has it, he even tried it himself for a bit. Sort of an Old West version of a door-to-door salesman. Lugging a cart around and hawking overpriced and mostly worthless wares. He'd also start working cattle. Not quite as easy. But this would see him traveling all the way north to the bustling cow town of Abilene, Kansas. And story goes that it's there in Abilene, at a circus, where he was first exposed to the infamous shell game. If you're not familiar, this is where three or more containers, cups, walnut shells, what have you, are placed face down with a small ball or dried pea directly underneath one of them. The operator then shuffles the shells around, and if you can guess which one contains the pea, you win. Simple as that. In reality, this is nothing more than a swindle, with the con man either hiding the pee altogether or utilizing some other sleight-of-hand trick to rig the game in his or her favor. Generally, they would allow an inside man or even a mark to win a few times just to give the illusion of honesty, obfuscation, and once the big money was wagered, surprise, surprise, there's no pee underneath your shell. Story of my life. Now, this game dates all the way back to ancient Greece, and you can still find people using it to separate fools from their money even nowadays. You better believe this was right up Jefferson Smith's alley. So much so that in no time flat, he began operating his own shell game back in Texas. Sadly, his mother would pass away in the summer of 1877, and although Smith would stick around for a few more months, he soon departed for the big city of Fort Worth. Now, just a quick word on his father. As I mentioned earlier, the narrative is that Jefferson Randolph I took to drinking after his substantial losses during the war, that he forfeited his law degree and failed to contribute to the family in any meaningful way thereafter. But I'm not sure how accurate this is. In that 1870 census I mentioned earlier, when they were living in Georgia, Smith was still working as an attorney. Likewise for the 1880 census, after his wife passed away. What's more, per the census, he's taking care of the remaining three children still at home. Now, how much he was taking care of him, I do not know. And he would die a little over 20 years later in an insane asylum. So he was obviously struggling at some point. Now, there is a book that the Smith family released titled Alias Soapy Smith that may contain more insight. But full disclosure, as of this recording, I have not yet read it. If you have and you'd like to chime in, please do not hesitate to hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. My main source of info today is coming from historian Jane Haig in her excellent book, King Khan, The Story of Soapy Smith. Link down in the description if you'd like to check it out. And for what it's worth, she too claims that following the war, Smith's daddy took little to no part in supporting his wife and kids. As far as Jeff II and his misadventures in Fort Worth, he was mostly pulling very basic street-level cons, like his newly discovered shell game. While Smith would indeed form his own gang in the years to come, that did not occur in Fort Worth, despite what you may hear elsewhere. He'd only spend a year there at most, just working as a very low-level hustler and very likely resorting to petty crime before moving on to the boomtown of Leadville, Colorado. This is where the worm began to turn. In Leadville, Jeff met a seasoned con known as Old Man Taylor, the same old boy credited with invented the soap scam that would eventually earn Smith his infamous handle. And it was pretty straightforward. Taylor would set up a card out on the thoroughfare and announce to all that he was selling individually wrapped bars of soap. And as luck would have it, some of the bars contained cash money. Soap with a prize! One of his young accomplices, like Jefferson Smith, would then pretend to be a bystander and purchase a bar that, you guessed it, contained cold, hard cash. This would entice others in the crowd to step forward. In short order, there'd be a bidding war on the remaining soap, but... 
As I'm sure you've already surmised, the entire thing was rigged, and no additional prize money was discovered. They would literally pull this trick every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, and Jeff got so damn good that he branched out on his own, surpassing even the profits of old man Taylor himself. Now, it weren't long before Leadville got a little too civilized for such an occupation. Taylor packed up and headed east, and Smith found himself starting over in the wide-open city of Denver. Much like Leadville, Denver got starred as a frontier mining town, catering to the usual mix of gamblers, pimps, criminals, and ne'er-do-wells. The population exploded from 4,500 souls in 1870 to over 35,000 when Jeff arrived in either late 1879 or early 1880. And it really was the perfect storm. A new city just getting its bearings, flush with both gold and silver, toss in a seemingly never-ending supply of investors, corrupt officials, and the easily duped, and it weren't long before clever young Jeff Smith began raking in money with both hands. Not to say that there weren't obstacles. Apparently not everybody enjoyed the pleasure of an overpriced bar of soap, and Jeff would be arrested at least three times over the next 18 months, mostly for larceny. It was during one such incident that Jeff's nickname finally came to fruition. The arresting officer listed him on the police register simply as Soapy. Just goes to show how often he was pulling the scam, and the name stuck. Now, Soapy's AO was 17th Street, in what's now known as Lodo, not far from the train station. He'd arrive each day in a little buggy, pull his soap out, and start hustling. Once the crowd realized they was being duped, he'd pack up in feigned indignation and just set up afresh a few blocks away. But you know the saying, right? Easy come, easy go. At the end of each day, Soapy would march his money over to the arcade on Larimer Street and try his luck at the faro table. The young man would commence to gambling until he was dead-ass broke, borrow money from the joint's owner, Big Ed Chase, and start all over again the next morning. Speaking of Chase, in addition to the arcade, he also operated the Palace Theater, a fancy joint on Blake Street that could accommodate up to 200 gamblers. And that's just the half of it. Upstairs was the theater portion, with enough seats to cater to 750 spectators, who were mostly drawn to the bevy of young showgirls on constant rotation. Hell, so alluring were these ladies that even Big Ed Chase would marry one of them, as would famed shootist Bat Masterson, and eventually, even our very own Soapy Smith. The gal in question, lady by the name of Mary Noonan, caught Soapy's eye on more than one occasion, and he finally worked up the nerve to make his move. Only problem was, he wasn't the only one. To quote Jane Haig in the book King Khan, as he, Smith, waited behind the stage for her one night, he saw a man accost her roughly. Soapy attacked the man, then escorted the lovely singer home and courted her over the following days. They were married in February of 1886. End quote. So there you go. Soapy the tough guy, not afraid to get his hands dirty for his lady love. Probably. With a guy like Soapy, you never know. I mean, the hustle really never stops, right? I wouldn't put it past him to have had one of his buddies pretend to attack Mary just so he could swoop in and save the day. But that's just the skeptic in me. As you'll soon hear, this would not be the last time a threat to his wife would cause Smith to erupt in violence. Now, in the same way that Soapy was apprenticed under old man Taylor back in Leadville, he found a new mentor there in Denver with Doc Bags, the guy I mentioned in the intro. Several years Smith Sr., Doc got his start on the river boats and railroad shanty towns before moving to the Mile High City. And whereas Soapy was still committing petty crime just to make ends meet, Doc Bags was most definitely in the Bunko Big Leagues. Back in those days, there were these dubious establishments sometimes referred to as dollar stores. And no, I ain't talking about the family dollar, but I do see a similarity. 
Instead of pulling their scams out on the street for God and everybody else to see, some of the smarter cons would open up fake stores with expensive merchandise on display in the windows, all just for a dollar. Bargain hunters would step inside and in no time flat either be tricked into a crooked game of three-card money or just flat-out robbed at gunpoint. Old Doc Bags improved upon this routine, and instead of a dollar store, he operated what was known as the Big Store, replete with solid oak furnishings, a well-dressed professional-looking staff, leatherback ledgers, and even a massive safe built right into the wall. You'd step inside and you'd swear it was some fancy accounting or investing firm. This is where the shills like Soapy would steer the uninitiated, usually with promises of fast cash. Bags would then convince the mark to invest in whatever his scheme of the day was, some sort of inside trading, fixed race, shit like that. And once they handed over their hard-earned dough, they would never see it or Bags again. And of course, just like the dollar stores, Doc wasn't afraid of resorting to armed robbery. Hell, he'd even occasionally go so far as having his men dress up as police officers while doing so. I mean, think about it. How the hell are you going to go to the cops for help when, so far as you know, it was the cops who just held your ass up at gunpoint? And if the victim was still bold enough to go to the real police, guess what? They were on Doc's payroll, at least some of them. Even the chief of police at one point was deep in Bag's pocket. But even with such measures in place, if for some strange reason the big store got raided by the law, they would likely find nothing but an empty building. Turns out that fancy office was just as fake as Bag's investments. And the solid oak furniture and huge wall safe were essentially just smoke and mirrors. Paper mache, folding partitions, and carefully painted wood panels, allowing he and his crew to pack up and walk away at a moment's notice. That said, you can only rob so many people without facing the consequences, right? And when the Denver police refused to keep Doc Bags in check, the Arapahoe County Sheriff, Michael Spangler, stepped up to bat. While Sheriff Spangler was not able to see Doc prosecuted, he at least made things so hot that the con man decided to skip town. Believe it or not, this was done by simply constantly following Bags around and warning potential victims. Guess Doc figured he'd have better luck elsewhere and lit out for greener pastures. Now this was in 1885, and in the months that followed, Soapy would take firm control over the gang of crooks that his mentor left behind. And a lot of these guys would continue working for Smith for over the next decade. Men with names like Reverend Bowers, Banjo Parker, Icebox Murphy, Old Man Tripp, Judge Van Horn, Sid Dixon, Fatty Gray, and Slim Jim Foster. And for the most part, they just continued pulling the same old scams. Everything from your run-of-the-mill street-level shit to elaborate long cons and everything in between. Crooked poker games, rigged roulette wheels, you name it, they were doing it. And yeah, Smith continued bribing the authorities. He and his gang's biggest mistake was targeting ordinary civilians. If Soapy could have kept his men in check and just continued conning his fellow crooks and naive travelers, he'd have been all right. But when the gang started going after longtime Denver residents, good church-going folks just minding their own business, that's when the local press started raising all kinds of hell. And not only were they listing Smith by name, but also calling out the politicians and other officials for turning a blind eye. One reporter in particular, John Arkins, even went so far as referencing Soapy's wife, Mary. Oh boy. Now up until this point, Smith had sort of been living a double life. He set his family up in a nice bungalow on the good side of town. And not only did most of his associates not realize that he was even married, but he and his wife's neighbors had absolutely no clue as to his real profession. So far as they were concerned, Mrs. Smith was married to a respected businessman. 
At least that's what they thought before Arkins started blabbing in the pages of the Rocky Mountain News. And I reckon Smith figured he'd really give the editor something to write about. Soapy laid in wait outside of Arkins' office shortly thereafter, and as soon as the reporter stepped out, he beat the man within an inch of his life. Smith would be arrested and charged with attempted murder, but the case ultimately never came to trial. Whether or not this was due to a technicality or Soapy having friends in high places, I do not know. Either way, the cat was now out of the bag, and so sullied was his wife's reputation that she up and moved the kids east all the way to St. Louis. And thanks to Arkin's reporting, Smith had no choice but to hit the road himself, at least temporarily. He wasn't on the run, mind you, just taking a break from Denver long enough to let things cool down a mite. He and his merry gang of con artists traveled to Salt Lake City, Ogden, Cheyenne, even up into Pocatello, Idaho. Soapy wouldn't stay in Idaho long, though. I guess, as they say, it's a small world after all. And he bumped into an old enemy from Denver by the name of Kid Kelly. Supposedly, Smith had previously ran Kelly out of Denver, and I guess what goes around comes around. Kelly ordered Soapy and his men to kick rocks, which led to a confrontation, which led to gunplay. Unfortunately, I was unable to find out much more information, but one of Kid Kelly's men took a bullet to the leg, and both he and Smith were arrested and escorted out of town and told not to come back. The Soapy gang would travel a little bit more, but by the spring of 1891, they were back in Denver, just doing their thing. It was at this point Smith opened up his famous Tavoli Club, right on the corner of 17th and Market Street. Hell, he was even so kind as to plaster a warning above the threshold reading, Caveat Emptor. That's Latin for buyer beware. Things just weren't the same as they was before, though, and it wasn't long before Soapy was arrested for fleecing a mark out of $1,500. And just to shine a bit of a light on Soapy's flair for the spoken word, I gotta share with you his defense at this trial. I'm telling you, this dude needed a podcast. When discussing his club, the Tavoli, and attempting to explain away the activities that went on there, Soapy's quoted as saying, We do not conduct a gambling establishment. We are reformers in the truest sense of the word. There are many so-called legitimate gambling places run openly in this city where victims play day after day and night after night. I conduct no such unsavory business. At the Tavoli, I am running an educational institution. The famous Keeley Institute provides a cure for the drinking habit. And at the Tavoli, I have a cure for the gambling habit. The man who steps into my place is faced with the sign Caveat Emptor, which hangs upon the wall. That is the danger beacon, a warning to all to slow up before rounding the curve. The stranger is not compelled to play. He must use his own judgment. But if he wants to play, he is not discouraged. Why should we tell him that it is useless to buck our tables? Let him learn from himself from actual experience. So we take him in hand and we give him a cure for the gambling habit. He has, of course, no chance of winning a cent because in my games, the player cannot win. When he leaves, he has learned a valuable lesson, one which he will never forget. He is disappointed, naturally, but he has had experience of the greatest value. In fact, gentlemen, I should be recognized as a public benefactor. End quote. Interestingly enough, Soapy would use a similar defense a few years later up in Alaska after being accused of robbing people on the way to the gold diggings, saying that it was, quote, infinitely better that a man who is such an infant as to try to beat a man at his own game should lose money here at the seaport than he should get out into the inhospitable Arctic where such an idiot would lose it anyway and become a burden on the community, end quote. Good old civic-minded Soapy, man. Just a humble public servant educating poor souls on the dangers of gambling. 
Now, even though he had just built this brand new establishment, when he got word of the silver strike over in Creed, he and his men wasted no time in making their presence known. The plan was to get there before the law or any other type of local government was established. That way, Soapy could have his own hand-picked officials elected and pretty much do as he pleased. As it turns out, he was not the only crook looking to take things over, though. Much to Soapy's dismay, Bob Ford, yes, that Bob Ford, the dirty little coward who shot Mr. Howard, had already proclaimed himself as the boss of Creed's underbelly. Not only had Ford opened up his own joint, but he was also taking a cut out of everybody else's action. Prostitutes, con men, gamblers, they were all paying a percentage to Bob Ford. Still, though, Soapy ended up prevailing, mostly from getting his own people elected to the town council. Hell, he even succeeded in making his brother-in-law the chief of police. And just like that, Bob Ford was out, at least as far as being the boss of Creed is concerned. By the way, it's there in Creed where Smith began charging folks 25 cents a head to view the petrified remains of an ape-like giant that he dubbed Colonel Stone. In truth, Colonel Stone was just simply made out of concrete, but that didn't stop the gullible from forking over their hard-earned money. And it damn sure didn't stop Soapy from taking it. You know, I hear stuff like this and the other cons that Soapy would pull, especially the really audacious shit he got up to in Alaska, and I can't help but think, damn, how stupid were these people? But then again, I'm reminded that even nowadays, there are those among us who are wholly convinced that the earth is flat, that we're ruled by lizard people, and that redheads are the literal descendants of aliens. <laughs> no matter how technologically advanced we get, some people are just willing to believe anything. And to be honest, I do think that thing about redheads might actually be true. No idea whatever happened to Colonel Stone, but by May of 1892, after just six short months, and despite his precautions, Smith had worn out his welcome in Creed. He was approached by a large delegation of honest men and told in no uncertain terms that they would be installing their own government. And that was that. Soapy left, and just a few weeks later, Bob Ford would also bid town adieu albeit in a pine box after being cut down with a shotgun blast in his own saloon. Now, Soapy would return to Denver, where he still had the Tivoli Club, but no matter what he did, he was finding it very hard to fly under the radar. Good taxpaying citizens were demanding reform, and even the cops that were on Smith's payroll were pressured to at least act like they were enforcing the law. As such, in late July of 1892, Smith and two other men were arrested outside the Tivoli for beating the hell out of a mark in broad daylight. Things got so bad that three months later, Denver officials had the club completely shut down. Ah, but Soapy wasn't ready to call it quits just yet. A new governor was elected there in Colorado, Davis Waite, and one of the first things he did was attempt to clean up the capital, Denver, by ordering the resignation of the entire crooked-ass police commission. Hell, even sacked the firefighters. What followed is now known as Denver's City Hall War. The cops refused to step down, so Governor Waite called in the militia, an action that spurred Soapy to arrive at City Hall with a large force of heavily armed crooks, along with 500 pounds of dynamite, and take up positions with the embittered policemen. I don't know what the hell Soapy was planning on doing with 500 pounds of dynamite, but I can only imagine the results wouldn't have been pretty. Next thing you know, here comes the National Guard with a damn cannon pointing straight at City Hall. Hell, even the regular army was sent in, seven companies of infantrymen on standby, just in case shit hit the fan. Had all the makings of the Battle of Lincoln all over again. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed, and the governor decided to let Colorado's Supreme Court settle matters. Ultimately, they decided that Waite did indeed have the authority to fire the police, 
although him escalating things to the point of near gunplay would cost him in the next election. So what's all this got to do with Soapy? Well, first of all, it just goes to show how entrenched he was with the Denver law enforcement. Sure, they may have arrested him on occasion, but he had so many of them on his payroll that he was willing to resort to an all-out war just to see that they would maintain power. And once they lost their power, so did he. Under Governor Waite's new administration came a heat unlike anything Smith had thus far experienced there in Denver. And if that's not bad enough, the entire country fell into an economic depression. By 1893, the silver mines began closing, banks were shutting down left and right, and that easy money that Soapy and his men were fleecing off of the simple-minded all but dried up. So, for the next couple of years, Smith just sort of traveled, searching out a new base of operations and a fresh crop of suckers. He would return to Denver on occasion, but the new law just wouldn't let him be. Soapy was arrested there in 1895 for assaulting a police officer, and then, just a few months later, several of his top guys were thrown behind bars. The Reverend Bowers and his own brother, Bascom Smith, among them. While Soapy was able to get him released without additional charges, they were told not so gently to stay the fuck out of town, or else. Okay, fine, but you better believe Smith went out with one hell of a bang. He and his brother, the aforementioned Bascom, hit the town with a vengeance basically going on a drunken two-man rampage. They'd go from saloon to saloon, firing their guns up into the ceilings, throwing kegs of beer through the windows, and pretty much challenging anyone who even so much as looked at them cross-eyed to a fight. While Bascom would end up getting arrested again, Soapy managed to slip out of town a free man. And once more, he began drifting. Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, St. Louis on occasion to visit his wife and kids. Hell, he even tried his luck down in New Orleans, where he was promptly arrested for vagrancy. By the way, I do think it's important to point out that Soapy wasn't living as an air quotes vagrant or hobo or anything like that. These vagrancy laws were put into place for people exactly like him. Gamblers and crooks. Pretty much anyone who couldn't prove they were otherwise gainfully employed were able to be targeted by law enforcement. Just a nice, neat, and unconstitutional way of kicking people out of town. Desperate to make some cash, Smith even attempted to con the damn Mexican government. Pretending to be a colonel in the U.S. Army, Smith traveled all the way to Mexico and met with Presidente Portofino Diaz. Soapy claimed that he had the means to raise an army of mercenaries to fight on Diaz's behalf. Only thing was, he needed a small down payment of around $10,000 to get him properly equipped. Obviously, Portofino's staff investigated Soapy after he returned to the States and discovered his true identity. Needless to say, Smith never received the money, but man, gotta at least give the guy credit. It took balls to attempt such a ruse down in Mexico. Shortly after this failed venture, Soapy would return to Texas. Ended up in the middle of a little feud down in Houston that saw an old friend shot and killed right in front of him before trying his luck in Dallas. No dice. The local law had him evicted not long after he arrived, and he got the same treatment at his next stop, Cripple Creek, Colorado. Matter of fact, he couldn't even get off the train there in Cripple Creek. Town Marshal, who knew Smith from back in the day, made sure that he kept his seat until the train headed out of town. Now, in Smith's absence there in Denver, a guy by the name of Lou Blonger had taken over the reins as the underworld kingpin. He and Soapy had sort of an uneasy alliance in years past, but they damn sure didn't have no love lost between the two of them, as evidenced by Smith's next visit to the Mile High City. Just like before, he went on a drunken rampage before deciding to pay Blonger a visit, maybe settle things once and for all, you know, see who really deserves to call the shots there in Denver. Luckily, the police stopped Soapy just as he was about to step inside Lou's joint. 
And I say luckily because Blonger was waiting, crouched behind a counter with a double-barreled shotgun in his hands. Fun fact, Lou Blonger would remain in control of the Denver Rackets until 1922, pretty much succeeding where Soapy failed. Then again, Blonger would die in prison as an old man, so not really sure how much of a success story that truly is. As for Soapy, as I'm sure you can imagine, he was feeling more than a little lost. I mean, what the hell is a con man supposed to do when he doesn't even have a town to run his cons in? And what's the world coming to when you can't even sell soap with a prize in it? I'm sorry, I thought this was America. Change was afoot, though. And when gold was discovered up in Alaska, ushering in the great Klondike gold rush, you better believe Soapy Smith knew exactly what to do. Kind of. In all honesty, his first venture into the Great White North was also a failure. He got arrested in Juneau, trying to pull that goddamn soap scam, in April of 1896. Undeterred, Soapy kept looking, moved around Alaska for a bit, and finally, by August 1897, he found exactly what he was looking for. The brand new, probably in need of soap with a prize in it town, of Skagway. Now, Skagway was a for-real boomtown, just like Deadwood and Tombstone. Reason being was it was the kicking-off point for the White Pass Trail also known as the Dead Horse Trail, one of the many passes that would-be prospectors would use to get to the gold-rich Yukon. At its height, nearly 1,000 miners passed through Skagway on any given week. That's a 1,000 new marks for Soapy and his crew to fleece for all they're worth. And then, if by some stroke of good luck they actually found gold, they gotta bring it right back down through Skagway on their way back home. You get them coming both ways. Now, initially, Smith began operating out of Clancy's saloon and brothel right there in Skagway as he and a few of his top guys began pulling just street-level scams, shell games, stuff like that, just testing the waters. But that was nothing compared to what he had planned. Just like Smith wished he could have done back in Denver and Leadville, and as he attempted to do in Creed, his end goal was total domination. And brother, he got pretty damn close. In time, other associates and gang members began trickling in. Twos and threes, some of them taking legitimate jobs as bartenders and the like while hustling on the side. It wasn't enough, though. Soapy would end up returning to the States and recruiting additional talent, both from New York City and the West Coast, just slowly building an army of crooks. And once he returned to Skagway, he stepped it up a notch, began shaking down other businesses for protection money. Nice hardware store you got there. Be a shame if something were to happen to it. Wink, wink. Hell, Smith even offered protection from the police. Believe it or not, alcohol was officially banned in Skagway, so anyone looking to sell liquor had to go through him. If not, guess what? Them crooked cops on Soapy's payroll were going to pay you a visit. Another big moneymaker was prostitution. There weren't a trick turned or a hand job given in Skagway that Soapy Smith didn't get a cut of. And it is truly astonishing the type of shit they were pulling up there in Alaska. Stuff that they had only dreamed about back in Denver. Seeing as how there was only one dock in Skagway, gold seekers and adventurers would get dumped right there on the beach. And you better believe that Soapy's men would rush in and greet them. These were the steerers, posing as legitimate business leaders or sometimes even ministers, looking to befriend the newcomers, gain their trust, and rob them blind. Take Slim Jim Foster, for instance. He'd oftentimes play the role of a young yet somewhat experienced prospector. He'd locate a likely mark and then help them move their gear and other supplies off the beach before the tide came rolling in. They'd talk for a bit, Slim Jim would gain the man's trust, and then steer him towards one of Soapy's many fake businesses. 
Once behind closed doors, right as the mark is pulling out his wallet for whatever the down payment of whatever the fake service is, a pair of heavies would then break in and hold everybody up. Slim Jim and the others would make a grand show of attempting to run the thieves off, but it was no use. They got away and the victim was left penniless. The good Reverend Bowers would pull the same shit, only he'd be on the prowl for newcomers sporting certain pins or emblems, indicating that they were members of some type of fraternal society like the Elk Lodge or Masons. Bowers had all the handshakes and greetings of these secret societies memorized, so when he approached a mark, he was able to greet the man as a brother. Instant trust, and just like with Slim Jim, these victims would be robbed of all they had in a very short order. Sid Dixon and Judge Van Horn would do the same. One was a disbarred lawyer turned dope fiend, and the other a former and disgraced justice of the peace. Be that as it may, they both cleaned up well and could look the part of dignified businessmen. They and countless others would prowl the beach every single day just looking for fresh meat. And if you were lucky enough to make it into town with your money still intact, you'd have to contend with the usual rackets. Rigged games, crooked dealers, conniving whores, you name it. Hell, even the telegraph office was fake. Out of all of Soapy's various scams, this has to be my favorite. You'd go to send a telegraph and everything looked legit, even down to the guy behind the counter with his little green eye shades and collarless shirt, dutifully punching out your message to loved ones back home. Only thing was, the telegraph line coming out of the office ran smack dab into the bay. Nevertheless, your relatives back home would miraculously reply, and oh no, it seems as if there's been an emergency and they need you to wire money, ASAP. Even the road out of Skagway headed towards the Yukon was patrolled by Smith's men. They'd set out hiking each day, carrying huge backpacks full of feathers, just to appear as if they were prospectors. And at any delay, usually of their own making, they'd break out their shells or other rigged games right there on the side of the trail. Now after a while, Soapy opened up his own joint, Jeff Smith's Parlor, right there on Holly Street. And he continued extorting money from the local businesses. The idea was that he and his men were the only thing stopping the violence from getting out of control. Also, other than a little extortion, Smith made sure that his gang was mostly terrorizing newcomers and not the actual residents of Skagway. And just to give you an idea of how rampant the crime was, the following comes from a miner who paid Skagway a visit in 1898. Quote, I have stumbled upon a few tough corners of the globe during my wanderings beyond the outposts of civilization, but I think the most outrageously lawless quarter I ever struck was Skagway. It seemed as if the scum of the earth had hastened here to fleece, rob, or to murder. There was no law whatsoever. Might was right. The dead shot only was immune to danger. End quote. Now, just a minor correction, but there was law in Skagway. It was just paid off by Soapy, for the most part at least. He also had at least one newspaper editor in his pocket, along with a reporter. These guys would make sure there were no damning stories ran in the local papers exposing Smith and his men. And when other out-of-town papers would malign Soapy's name, they quickly posted articles in his defense. Case in point, a Seattle paper in February of 1898 wrote that the conditions of lawlessness in Skagway were beyond description and that holdups, robberies, and shootings were all a part of the daily routine. A few days later, one of Soapy's shields at the Skagway paper wrote that these claims were made by, quote, Blackmailing liars, a lot of dastardly bastards hired to run down Skagway. Not a word of truth in what they utter. Skagway is the most peaceable city in the North. Also, Soapy Smith has a very large penis and is extremely adept in pleasing women sexually. He definitely for sure did not pay me to write this, end quote. 
And no, I added that last part about Soapy's Tallywhacker, but you get the picture, right? Remember what I said at the beginning of this episode? Smith's biggest talent lie in obfuscation. Whether it was a street-level scam or the press, he was always muddy in the water, always distorting the truth in some manner. Now, as much control as Soapy wielded there in Skagway, he was only one man. And despite what he was telling all those businessmen, there was just no way he alone could control such a large criminal element. As such, the violence increased, with some victims just being flat-out murdered for their money. A few had their heads bashed in, while others were just shot, their bodies left to freeze on the trail. Whether or not Soapy ordered these deaths, or his men were just getting out of hand, or it was being done by somebody else, I do not know. That said, there is some indication that Smith wasn't above a little cold-blooded murder. In May of 1898, Ella Wilson, a prostitute, got killed in her sleep, and the money she was squirreling away in a large trunk, stolen. At that same time, a Denver madam by the name of Maddie Silks was also in Skagway, having just returned from a very lucrative trip up to the Yukon where she had earned a whopping $38,000 in just three months. I do not want to know what she did for that money. Later, Silks would claim that she narrowly avoided being murdered by Soapy and his men. Per historian Jane Haig in the book King Khan, quote, Maddie reported that she occupied a room in the Occidental Hotel, adjoining one that served as the office for the marshal. Only a partition of thin boards separated the two rooms, and she stated that the night after the murder, that's the murder of Ella Wilson, she heard Marshal Taylor, Soapy Smith, Billy Tanner, and Bowers talking in Taylor's office while dividing up the money, end quote. Silks also claimed to have heard these same men plotting to kill and rob her in a similar fashion, before she very judiciously decided to sneak out onto the next ship leaving town. Whether or not these stories are true, I can't say. But I do know that the citizens of Skagway were getting mighty tired of Soapy's bullshit. In January of 1898, a guy named Andy McGrath was drugged and robbed in one of the Smith gang-owned saloons. He went and got a deputy marshal by the name of Rowan, and in the confrontation that followed, a bartender shot and killed both men. The most tragic part was the deputy Rowan's wife was in labor as all this was happening. Hell, the only reason he was out that time of night was to locate a doctor. Sadly, he bumped into Annie McGrath instead, and it cost both of them their lives. Now, I don't know whether or not this deputy had ever previously taken money from Soapy, and I also don't know that the bartender in question was on Smith's payroll. It doesn't matter, though. Remember, he was supposed to keep the violence in check and stop any of the good citizens from being armed. And at that, Smith was failing miserably. As such, the honest men of Skagway began secretly forming a vigilance committee with the intent to lynch in that bartender, who by that point was firmly under Soapy's protection, and he refused to hand him over. The vigilance committee also began petitioning officials in the lower 48 to proclaim martial law, and this cry for help did not fall on deaf ears. By February, two companies of the 14th Infantry were sent north to Skagway with an additional two located at nearby Dai. So things quieted down, at least for a few weeks, until on February 22nd, a soapy gang member took yet another life, shooting to death a newcomer. Following week, the army finally arrived and immediately shut down all saloons and gambling houses as a irate Smith vowed vengeance. Around this same time, yet another killing took place, this time on the White Pass Trail. The victim, Peter Bean, had been shot at a very close range. There was no way of knowing whether this was the work of Soapy's men or not, but the Vigilance Committee had, by God, had enough. They promptly posted a notice in public with the word warning in big, bold letters. And the rest read as follows, quote, 
A warning to the wise should be sufficient. All confidence men, bunko and sure thing men, and other objectionable characters are notified to leave Skagway and the White Pass Road immediately and to remain away. Failure to comply with this warning will be followed by prompt action. Signed, the 101. And I assume 101 signified the numbers of the Vigilance Committee, how many men they could muster up if they needed to. As you can imagine, Soapy wasn't all that happy with this little threat. So he posted his own notice that very night, also with the word warning in big bold letters. Quote, The body of men styling themselves 101 are hereby notified that any overt act committed by them will promptly be met by law-abiding citizens of Skagway. And each member and his property will be held responsible for any unlawful act on their part. And the Law and Order Society, consisting of 317 citizens, will see that justice is dealt out to its fullest extent, as no blackmailers or vigilantes will be tolerated. Signed, the committee. End quote. Okay, so Soapy's letting the vigilantes know that he's got them outnumbered three to one. And what's more, he was willing to destroy their property if they made a move on he and his men. By the way, I love how he calls his committee the Law and Order Society. That's just classic Soapy obfuscation. What's left is right and what's up is down. So this happened in early February of 1889. The saloons are still closed down and the army is camped just outside of town, ensuring they stay that way. What's more, the tension between the Vigilance Committee and Smith's men is reaching a fever pitch, a situation made all that worse by a damn meningitis outbreak. Didn't stop Soapy and his men from continuing to earn, though. That spring thaw would see thousands of miners returning from the Yukon, and some of them would be flushed with gold. Hell, they even attempted to rob the Mounties at one point. But then something happened that caught everybody's attention, and not just in Alaska. The battleship Maine was sunk over in Havana, which helped usher in the Spanish-American War. Believe it or not, when Soapy got wind of this, he wrote a letter to then-President William McKinley offering up his freshly formed Skagway Military Company to go fight in Cuba. And while the POTUS did not take him up on this offer, Smith did at least receive a reply signed by McKinley's secretary, just acknowledging that the letter had been received. Per Jane Haig, quote, Soapy naturally exaggerated the story, allowing the word to spread that he had received a letter signed by the Secretary of War, commissioning him a captain of volunteers. Soapy backed up this story by producing the commission papers, which he showed to prospector Harry Sudham. Although Sudom later concluded that the papers were forged, Soapy once again had created enough confusion to convince most of Skagway of the legitimacy of his endeavor, end quote. And yeah, the man just goes ahead and raises his own damn militia, calling them the 1st Regiment of Alaska Volunteers. Not only that, but he even put on a parade for the entire town, Smith riding in front on his white horse as his troops marched behind him. Two months later, they did the same for the big 4th of July celebration. And when the parade was over, once again to quote Jane Haig, when it was time for the speeches, there was Soapy seated on the dais with Governor Brady and the other dignitaries. So this dude is just bold as hell. Crooked as the day is long, yet he's running around calling himself a captain or a colonel or whatever the hell he said he was, and putting on parades for the town. Little did Soapy know, but he'd have less than a week to live. And by the way, between these two parades was when his men killed that prostitute that I mentioned earlier, Ella Wilson. So make no mistake about it, despite pretending to raise an army, he was still out there robbing. Hell, he and his men were even employing a brand new trick. Somehow, they had caught a bald eagle and were keeping it in a cage just behind Smith's saloon. 
They'd lure newcomers back there just to show them the eagle. And once they got behind the fence, they'd either trick them into one of the mini rigged games or just simply mug them. And it was this eagle that would end up being Soapy's downfall. Less than a week following the 4th of July festivities, an unwitting Mark, John Stewart, was enticed to go see the eagle. And once gang members got him away from prying eyes, they promptly pounced and stole the nearly $2,700 worth of gold that Stewart had on his person. Of course, he went straight to Marshal Taylor and lodged a complaint, but unbeknownst to him, the good Marshal was part of Smith's operation. And when that didn't work, Stewart started telling his story to anyone who'd listen. Word spread, and the Vigilance Committee got wind of what occurred, and they too began making a ruckus. So much so that Soapy initially promised to give the money back. This was definitely a turning point, and the brazen robbery of Stewart in broad daylight seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Also, I think Soapy, and pretty much everybody else, knew that his time in Skagway was coming to an end. Hell, even the newspaper editor that he had paid off turned against him and finally began printing the truth. Unfortunately, Soapy did not return the gold. Imagine that. When he was told there would be trouble, he replied, By God, trouble is what I'm looking for. And later that night, he would damn sure find it. The Vigilance Committee held a huge gathering at a place called Sylvester's Hall. But fearing an infiltration from Soapy's men, they reconvened at the end of City Dock, also known as Juno Wharf, in hopes of just better controlling those who were allowed to attend. And to ensure their privacy, they posted four armed guards at the dock's entrance. Now, Soapy absolutely knew that all this was going down. He had been getting his load on since that morning, and he continued drinking throughout the day. By 9 p.m., he was fairly lit and decided to take matters into his own hands. Snatching up his Winchester, Soapy began making his way, with several of his men trailing at the distance behind him, to the dock. And once there, he was confronted by 54-year-old Frank Reed, one of the men guarding the entrance. What happened next is somewhat up for debate, at least the exact chain of events. One version has it that Soapy lifted his rifle to strike Reed, causing the guard to grab the barrel with his left hand and push it down, while at the same time pulling his revolver with his right. Soapy may have succeeded in striking Reed, and Reed may have already had his pistol drawn. There does seem to be some confusion as far as that goes, but the end result was both men firing at the same time. Onlookers would later state that the initial volley sounded as one, followed quickly by somewhere between five to nine shots. Reed took at least one bullet to the groin, passing all the way through to his hip, as Soapy was shot three times. Once in the leg, another in the elbow, and a fatal round straight to the heart. Both men collapsed to the ground in a growing puddle of blood. Soapy Smith deader than hell, and Reed following him to the other side just 12 short days later. Now, the underlings who followed Smith to the wharf had stayed back at first, at his order, but once they saw their leader fall, they came rushing in. At the same time, so did the Vigilance Committee which caused the thugs to have a quick change of heart as they beat feet in the opposite direction, some of them straight out of town. Now, this was a Friday, and by Monday morning, at least 27 of Soapy's men were in custody. Hell, it would have been more, but they were hauling ass out of Skagway just as quick as they could. A few of them even hiding out in the hills like Old Man Tripp, Reverend Bowers, and Slim Jim Foster. About the only thing to save these prisoners from a lynching was a newly sworn-in deputy U.S. Marshal by the name of J.M. Tanner, who ended up standing the mob down. Nevertheless, they did break into Soapy's room at the Burkhardt Hotel, where they found Mr. Stewart's gold, minus around $600. Now, all these gang members would be indicted, even the crooked Marshal Taylor, and they were all put on ships and sent back to the mainland. Hell, the good folks at Skagway even forced Soapy's mistress to leave town. 
That said, the vast majority of the gang was able to simply disappear into the night, and of those arrested, only a few ended up getting sentenced. But I guess it didn't much matter to the honest citizens of Skagway. They wanted Soapy gone, and now he was. I mean, kind of. He was dead and all, but his grave is still up there, right where they stuck him in the summer of 98. If you'd like to pay a visit and maybe get one of those bars of soap with a prize inside, you can still find Smith resting at Skagway's Gold Rush Cemetery, his marker reading the same exact way as it did when they buried him. Jefferson R. Smith died July 8, 1898, aged 38 years. And that's about all I've got on Soapy Smith. Thank you so much for listening. Do me a favor, you like what you hear? If you're yearning for more true tales from the wild and woolly west, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wild west. Your financial support is not only welcome, but it's what enables me to continue to share these stories. And if you can't contribute financially, I get it. Don't worry. I still like you. Just keep on listening and sharing with others. That really does help more than you may realize. If you've got any complaints, suggestions, compliments, or anecdotes you'd like to share, feel free to go to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. Let me know what's on your mind. Till next time, be wary of the modern-day Soapy Smiths, because they are damn sure out there. Hell, more than a few of them are likely waiting in the spam folder of your email inbox as we speak. Remember, if something is too good to be true, it probably is. Especially that girl at the bar half your age. Adios! I'm sorry, I thought this was America. <laughs>